0: You've got to hear this song. Everybody said it. Everybody's heard it. It doesn't matter what age you are. Certain songs just have that timeless quality. And so do certain biblical truths. And just like every generation discovers these songs, every generation needs to discover these truths. Mixtape, fresh voices for your summer. Good evening, everyone. It is gorgeous outside. I'm so blessed and so thankful to be here. Uh, I, I, have, I know every single time someone gets the mic, they just start talking how much they love the, the height six and we, our family really does. Um, in, in 1985, Skip called my dad and asked him to be on staff here at the church. And he said, of course, but Mary needs to have Jonathan. That's me. And so in 19, from 1985 to about 1992, uh, my dad served here with y'all. And I'm just, just humor me. Who remembers Gino Juraci? This is great. Well, we leave in 1992 to Denver, and I I know this is said so often, but if it weren't for Skip calling my dad to move from California to come here to New Mexico, and then we decided to leave because Skip encouraged my dad to go to Denver. I wouldn't have met my wife, who I've been married this October to for 14 years, And it's great. She hasn't left me yet. We have three beautiful girls, and I'm just so thankful for him because he's played a pivotal role because in the next six months, uh, my dad and I are in a transition, and I'm taking over the church that we started. And this October, we'll be turning 27 years old, the church, and this December will be my dad's last month pastoring the church. So we are blessed. On behalf of my dad and my family, thank you guys for inviting me. And it's just, it's just an honor to be here. What an amazing church that loves God's word. So if you have your Bibles, turn to John chapter 6. We're going to cover v- verses 15 through 21. And while you're turning there, I'm going to open us up with prayer. Heavenly Father, we are just so thankful for a community of believers that amplify the name of Jesus. And, Lord, I just want to pray for the Heitzix, for Skip and Lenya, as they are taking a much-needed break. And I pray they would come back refreshed, Lord. I pray that you would pour into Skip and Lenya. I thank you, Lord, for this church. And, God, I just ask as we open up the Word and as we talk about you, that you would comfort those in here who are facing a storm, who feel like they're suffocating, that the word would bring comfort to the saints. And we ask this in Jesus' name, and all God's people said, amen. amen. Like I said, so in, in 2012, Pastor Skip alluded to it and said it, but in 2012, I planted Declaration Church located in Mount Pleasant, South Carolina. Now keep in mind, I, I moved from Denver, Colorado to Charleston, South Carolina, and I noticed a drastic weather difference For any of those who are mildly giggling or have been to the East Coast, you know what I'm talking about. But I also notice how the natives handle snow. Uh, What's interesting is for Coloradans, snow's a part of life. Snow storms are inevitable. But for South Carolinans, they approach snow like this. Here, let me just think of the first example that comes to mind. Imagine you put a cat in a pillowcase, right? and you just start swinging the pillowcase and you're just like nothing bad is gonna happen from this and then you open up the pillowcase and the cat comes out. That's South Carolinians when they approach snow. They freak out, they don't know how to handle it and, and, and it, it's hilarious to me because here's the thing, if there's even talk of snow, just talk, it doesn't even have to snow in Charleston, guys. If there's even talk of snow, it means you go into the store and it's like a post-apocalyptic like movie set. Like every piece of bread is completely gone. Like in the entire church, or excuse me, in the entire state, it's insane. And I get people respond to storms differently. But again, for Colorado, snow is hilarious because it's inevitable. Children have to be missing before like, they even consider delaying school. Five children are missing in seven feet of snow, so local schools decided to delay at five minutes. <laughs> For Coloradans, snow is just a part of life. Because, again, we all face storms differently. And we all face spiritual storms differently. While some of you might say the same thing, like, it's just a part of life. There might be those in here who th- say things like, I feel like it's leaving me to a point where I'm suffocating. Or at worst, there might be some people throwing your fist in the air and saying, why can't I just catch a break? And maybe for a lot of you, that's where you're at right now. Everyone faces storms differently. James called them trials. James called them various trials because they come in various degrees of, of intensity and forms. And yet, if you've read this little epistle, you know how you should respond to trials. You count them as joy. And yet in John chapter six, we're about to open it up. We see a slightly different response to the disciples and how they faced a storm. They they didn't initially react joyfully, and you'll see what I mean. So let's look at John chapter six, beginning in verse 15. It says, therefore, when Jesus perceived that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, he departed again to the mountain to pray. Did you catch that? Jesus knew they wanted to make him king. Keep in mind, this, the context is, Jesus had just finished feeding the 5,000 plus people with the loaves of bread and the fish. And at that point, the people were like, this is the greatest thing I've ever seen. Like, this is our king. This is the guy who's going to like make the big change, the wording, which is why I want you to pay attention to verse 15 is they wanted to to take him by force to make him keen, meaning Jesus willing or not, you're the guy, Jesus willing or not, you're the one who's going to rise up against the Roman empire to fix this issue we have. Now, the issue wasn't whether or not Jesus was king. He is king. We sing songs about it. We read books about it. We go to conferences about it. And we see it in the scripture. Remember when Jesus appeared to Nathanael? Nathanael, who's under the fig tree, and Jesus tells him, I saw you there. And then Nathanael, with excitement in John 1 says, Rabbi, you're the son of God, the king of Israel. Another instance in scripture where we see Jesus is declared as king as he's making his way into Jerusalem on the donkey and the people, the fickle people are going to announce blessing on the one who comes in the name of the Lord. Hail, the king of Israel. There's no doubt Jesus is king. But here in John chapter 6, the issue that we're seeing is that the people had a political agenda behind making him king. You see, they didn't look at Jesus as the one who could Remove their sin and the bondage that they were in. They looked at Jesus as the one that could remove them from the bondage and oppression of the Roman Empire. So, naturally, verse 15, because he knew they wanted to take him by force, the end of it says, He departed again to the mountain to pray. Now, based on the other gospel accounts, which by the way, we're going to read tonight. We know he, again, is at the mountain to pray. But I want you to continue with me in verses 16 through 17, back in John. It says this Now, when the evening came, his disciples went down to the sea. They got into the boat, and they went over to the sea toward Capernaum, and it was already dark, and Jesus had not yet come to them. In a moment, I'm going to read from Mark's account, and I'm also going to read from Matthew's account, because both of these accounts give us the big picture. They paint everything down so that we can understand it fully. And the reason why I'm gonna do that is because verses 16 and 17, just John chapter six in general, isn't very descriptive because a lot of you maybe are familiar with the story, but you're like, I feel like there's more to it than what we're reading right now. Let's continue to verse 18. The sea arose because a great wind was blowing. The disciples at this point are in the Sea of Galilee, and the wind is beginning to take heavy effect. There there are skilled fishermen who are familiar and are aware of how the the tempestuous storms can come and go. They're they're familiar with it. It's nothing beyond what they're used to. But I I want you to notice the transition between verse... 17 and 18. In, in verse 17, when the disciples got into the boat, were told it was dark. Jesus had not yet come to them. They're alone. Like I said, they're used to this kind of setting, but they're by themselves. They're isolated. But then verse 18, then the sea arose because a great wind was blowing. Now, correct me if I'm wrong, church. Haven't you always noticed that life brings, inevitably, a calm before the trials and the storms hit us. It seems like sometimes we, we prepare the, the, to the best of our ability, but overall, sometimes the storms of life come when we least expect it, or as some of you put it, life throws me a curveball. Because generally speaking, no one in here is intentionally looking for hardship. No one in here is like, you know what? Life's a little easy. I would like some difficulty in my life right now. And yet we have pop culture. Yes, I'm saying pop culture, but I'm going to reference a 90s film. We have cinematic history with movies like Twister. Do you remember that 1996 classic? The entire premise, for those that don't know what this movie is, the entire premise is Helen Hunt and Bill Paxton trying to see how close they can get to a tornado. And that's it. And again, I get like, for those in here, it's like, listen, John, there are meteorologists who give their life to study tornadoes. And I get that, like I do. And I'm thankful for it. And I even understand that studying it could potentially uh, save lives, but oh boy, you couldn't pay me enough money to have that job. Like, what's your job? I get as close as I can to tornadoes. Why? I'm a pastor's kid. No, I mean, it's not, it's not how it works. Christians are not called to be spiritual tornado hunters. And yet the disciples are facing a storm, listen guys, that Jesus asked them to sail into. So of course I have to ring up a question. If Jesus knows they're about to enter a storm, let's ask the, the obvious. Does Jesus know all things? Yes. Does he know the storm is coming? Yes. Okay, so then if Jesus knows all things, he knows this storm is coming, why didn't he advise them to wait until the storm had passed? Because he could have done that. It could have been a lot easier. But here's where it gets crazy. Not only did Jesus know exactly that the storm was coming, he forced them to get into the boat. Yes, you heard me correctly because now we're going to read from Mark's gospel. If you have your Bibles, you can turn to it or you can just listen to me. Mark chapter six, verse 45 through 46 tells us this. Immediately, he made his disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side, to Bethsaida. While he sent the multitude away, he, and, and when he had sent them away, he departed to the mountain to pray. Now, I don't know if you noticed when I was reading it, this was not a kind suggestion. This wasn't just a vague hint It says he made them get into the boat. You ready for the King James version of how it renders this verse? He constrained his disciples to get into the boat, which in the Greek is anakonzo. Now, get this. If you take that word constrained, anakonzo, it literally means to necessitate by force. Get in the boat. Well, are you gonna come with us, Jesus? You're gonna get in right now. Oh, okay, all right. So then I ask this question. Why would Jesus, by force, as we just read, made the disciples get into the boat to cross the sea if he knows the storm is coming? A lot of you are not going to like this answer, but you ready? It's Because he was testing their faith. Because he knows what the outcome is going to be, and the disciples don't. You ready for this? A faith that can't be tested is a faith that can't be trusted, Mr. Warren Wiersbe said. Mr. Warren Wiersbe, by the way, passed away last month. Warren Wiersbe lived to be 89 years old, has written over 150 books and died two weeks before his 90th birthday. He's the pastor's pastor. For those of you that don't know Warren Wiersbe, the man writes pure gold. In fact, Warren Wearsby, if he was still alive in here, he could take this message and, and do it in like three minutes. And everyone here would be like, that was the greatest Bible study I've ever heard in my life. Everyone in the crowd would throw confetti. And then people would be like, where'd the confetti go? Well, it's Warren Wearsby. I mean, he was that good. He was that good. But a, a faith that can't be tested is a faith that can't be trusted, as he puts it. Ladies and gentlemen, as hard as this sounds, guys, because I don't want to be insensitive to a lot of you that are facing some really hardship right now. But you need to understand that storms are not meant to destroy you. They're intended to develop you. They're intended to not only bring about and and to increase your faith in Jesus. What we're going to read here in a second, guys, is the storm is for the disciples' benefit. You see, Jesus knew exactly what he was doing by sending them into the eye of the storm. And I think this is where a lot of you might have already disconnected. Because the concept of suffering and understanding the sovereignty of God is so difficult. John, it's hard for me to connect why things have to happen the way that they do. It's hard to wrap our minds around. And I'm the first to tell you it's true. It's hard to understand why Jesus wants to use storms as a way to strengthen not only our faith, but the disciples' faith. But guys, follow me for a second. I want you to go back in time right now and think, or even maybe what you're facing right now a time in your life that you faced one of the most difficult hardships that you wouldn't wish upon your worst enemy. And then what you realize through that hardship is it forced you to pray in ways that you never thought you would pray. It forced you to seek after the Lord that you probably wouldn't have sought after had had you not gone through what you've been through. I get that storms are not only difficult, but they're hard to wrap our mind around. And before a lot of you draw your own conclusions about Jesus, we cannot forget, we cannot forget, church, God is not the author of evil and confusion. He loves the disciples. He knows exactly what he's doing. They're on the forefront of his heart, even during the tempestuous storm. So not only did Jesus know the storm was coming, get this, he knew there would be a level of difficulty and struggle with the disciples. Look at verse 19 now of John chapter 6. The first part, we're not going to read the whole thing. Let's read the first part. It says, so when they had rode about three or four miles. Now just stop there for a second. What's interesting is that we're told in Matthew's account that it was the the what? The fourth watch of the night, which basically means it's sometime between three and six o'clock in the morning. This means these guys have been rowing on the Sea of Galilee for hours and hours only to reach the middle of the sea. By the way, the Sea of Galilee, largest freshwater lake in Israel. It's like seven, eight miles long in diameter, and it's notorious for storms. Now, I've been to the Sea of Galilee twice. I know you guys are going to Israel uh, next, next year, yeah? And for those of you that have been to the Sea of Galilee, which, by the way, I saw some of the footage of your guys' last trip, which looked like a Steven Spielberg film. Like, you've got this aerial view of the Sea of Galilee, and I'm like, I want to go on that trip with Skip. You guys, it is. A, if you have not gone to the... If you've been thinking, like, should we go next year? Don't even think about it. Just do it. It's gorgeous. But for me, when I went, it was a beautiful day. And I'm trying to imagine this story during that time on the boat ride. Because it was, it was gorgeous. But the disciples, it, it wasn't so. They're four miles in during the craziness of the storm. But what's interesting is we're told, according to Mark, Mark's account, that the disciples, wh- what they were doing as they were facing the storm. Listen to this, Mark chapter six, verse 47 through 48 says this. When the evening came, the boat was in the middle of the sea and he was alone on land. Now listen to this next part, verse 48 of Mark chapter six. Then he saw them straining at rowing for the wind was against them. So often we are in church and we listen to the pastor and we're like, verily. Did you realize what we just read? The sea of Galilee, as I told you, is eight miles long. The disciples are in the middle of the sea and Jesus can see them not only can he see them, he can see that they're struggling. He uses his supernatural hawk-like eye from a distance to see that they're distressed. Jesus is at the top of the mountain during the storm while the boat's four miles in. He can see everything. And Mark's gospel says he saw them straining at rowing. And you know what, guys? He could tell they were fatigued. He could tell they were frustrated. And it's interesting to me. You can tell when someone's frustrated. Like someone doesn't even have to say anything. I am looking at some of you right now. You look, why isn't Skip here? (laughs) This guy has tattoos. What does that mean? I don't know. He's looking at us though. You can tell when someone's frustrated just by their body language. And yet Jesus knew the storm was at hand and he knew the frustration it was going to follow. And I got to go back to this point. But his eye is still on them the entire time. His eye is still on them. Because I wonder how many of you even coming to church are like, I need to hear something, John. You You need to give me something. Because maybe some of you feel alone right now. Not only do you feel alone, you feel hopeless in storms. And you feel like maybe, and the honest truth is, some of you are like, I feel like Jesus is taking his sweet time. Listen, church, that is not the case. Psalm 56.8 tells us, you have seen how many places I have gone. You've put my tears in your bottle. Are they not in your book? Oh, church, Jesus keeps track of your sorrows and your tears and your anguish. So not only does Jesus see everything, and this is especially during times of trial, but guys, he does not want to hide his presence from you. He actually wants to comfort you. Get this, Paul the apostle, when he was writing to the church at Corinth, once said in 2 Corinthians 1.4, he gives us comfort in all our troubles. Listen to this, guys. Jesus comforts us in all of our troubles. Why? Why? This is what he wants you to do in return. He gives us comforts in in all of our troubles. Then we can comfort other people who have the same troubles. We give the same comfort God gives us. And again, it doesn't change the fact that some of you are still struggling. Maybe you're thinking like, why would I even think about helping someone else when no one can help me and I can't even help myself? And I need to tell you all something, your suffering has one of two outcomes: suffering either will make you self-centered or suffering will make you the most considerate person alive. meaning you're either going to be a part of the problem or you're going to be a part of the solution and again, I don't doubt that suffering trials, hard times they're difficult. We all can be here for hours talking about it, but you all can agree with I hope you can agree with me that That trials stretch us in ways we never thought we could be stretched. And I don't know about you, but I have seen people respond to storms and trials that increase my faith. I'm a pastor. I'm a pastor's kid. But I I can't even begin to tell you the amount of times watching and even asking the question. And maybe some of you have seen this and and you think, like, how can they do it? Like, How can they stand so firm and, and trust that God is in control when it seems like everything in their life is out of control? Have you ever met someone like that? And their eyes are fixed on Jesus and they trust Jesus. And you look at them and you, and you almost want to tell them, like, it's okay to be mad. And then you look at them and you realize, you know what? The answer doesn't lie within the individual. It lies with the one residing in the individual Jesus Christ himself. And here's the thing, guys. The way that you respond to storms reveals your true character. And again, to honor Mr. Warren Wiersbe, we're going to do another Wiersbe quote. Listen to this. Suffering will either be your master or your servant, depending on how you handle the crisis of life. After all, a crisis doesn't make a person. It reveals what the person is made of. Guys, the disciples are in no doubt a crisis. They're frustrated. They're fatigued. They're tired. They're looking for Jesus. Why did he send us across the sea when this is going to happen? And while it's all happening, Jesus sees their suffering from a distance. And there is something to be said. And again, I hope if there's anything you remember from tonight, it's this. Guys, his, his eyes are still on them. His eyes are still on them the entire time. Because most of us during a storm, a spiritual storm, we think that the best solution is just to simply ask Jesus to stop the storm. That in our mind is perfect. Like, get me out of this storm, Lord. Yeah, that's the easy thing. I get it. Like, Lord, I I don't want to be sick. I don't want my family to suffer. Like, am I ever going to get a job or I hate my job? How am I going to pay the bills? My kids are more defiant than they've ever been and we go through the list and we wonder why, and we ask God why, get me out of the storm. Just get me out. When in fact, as hard as it is for me to say, but I'm with you guys, maybe the prayer we should be asking is, what do you want me to get out of this storm? What do you want me to learn from this experience? And and instead of Jesus just stopping the storm from a distance because we know he could have, he does something a little more creative. Look at the end of verse 19 of John chapter six. So they rode about three or four miles. Now look, they saw Jesus walking on the sea and drawing near the boat and they were afraid. Now this is interesting. Because in the same verse that says they saw Jesus walking on the sea, you would think because they see Jesus, they're like excited. They're filled with hope. They're like Jimmy Stewart. They're like, Mary, get the kids. It's Jesus. He's going to save them day. I'll tell you what. But don't, that doesn't happen. He doesn't get, they don't get excited. The end of verse 19, even though they see Jesus, they're afraid. But that doesn't make sense, John, author of this gospel. This doesn't make any sense unless there's more to this story than what we're told in John's account. Maybe maybe the last two verses will give us a hint. It'll shed some light. John chapter six, verse 20 and 21. But he said to them, it is I, don't be afraid. Then they willingly received him into the boat and immediately the boat was at the land where they were going. <laughs> Wait a second. They willingly received him into the boat. Just a second ago, they're freaking out. Jesus is walking on water Jesus is like, guys, don't be afraid, it's me. And then it transitions to, so they willingly received him into the boat. Okay, Bible students, I hope this is causing you to ask questions. Like, this seems like there's more to this story than what we're, what's really written here. Because here's it is. The disciples, we're gonna die. This is what they're concluding. Here comes Jesus. It's okay, guys, it's me, it's JC. Oh, good, we're not even gonna question that you're walking on water. Instead, we're gonna just willingly receive you into the boat, It can't be that easy unless there's more to the story. Oh boy, that's because there is more to the story. Now I'm going to read from Matthew's account. Matthew chapter 14, verse 26 through 28. He tells us this. And when the disciples saw him walking on the sea, they were troubled saying, it's a ghost. And they cried out in fear. But immediately Jesus spoke to them saying, be of good cheer. It is I, don't be afraid. And Peter answered, and he said, Lord, if it is you, command me to come out to the water. Just stop there for a second. Like, seriously, what is Peter thinking? Like what, like, what? they think it's a ghost. And I don't know about you, but if I saw a shadowy figure during a storm on the sea, walking on water towards me, and it, all of a sudden it's just like, don't be afraid, it's me. I don't know why I made him sound like David Bowie there, but anyways... I wouldn't say something like, Oh, that's good enough for me. You know what I do? I jump off the boat, leave my buddies there to deal with this shadowy figure that's talking to us while walking on the water. But not Peter. And I, I, I love that about him. I love that about Peter. I love that's he he asks this question. If it is you, then tell me to come out. And I don't think he expected this response. Matthew 14, 29. So Jesus said, Come. And then Peter said, shoot. No, it doesn't say that. So, and then when Peter had come down out of the boat, he walked out in the water to go to Jesus. Now, again, we have no idea what prompted Peter to ask this question. Some call it, wow, that's amazing faith. Some call it like painful stupidity. Either way, guys, I love Peter. I appreciate Peter because he actually responds to Jesus's invitation to walk out onto the water. And he does. Peter's faith. Peter's eyes, Peter's trust is directed towards Jesus in that moment. Nothing can take away this powerfully defined all physics moment from him except one thing it's doubt. Listen to what happens. Matthew 14 30. But when he saw that the wind was boisterous, church, say boisterous. Very good, church. He was afraid and beginning to sink. He cried out, Lord, save me. I can't wait to get to heaven and watch this footage. And I don't want to watch Peter. You know what I want to watch? I want to watch the disciples' reaction because it makes you wonder if they started cracking up when he went into the water. <laughs> Am I right? Why, why else would America's Funniest Home Videos exist? You know why? Because one out of every four of the videos is someone falling on their face or getting hurt somehow. It's just, it is what it is. But what happens, here's Peter. He's looking at Jesus. He's just probably in amazement. And then he takes his eyes off Christ. Hey, church, here's a, a very simple lesson, but it's, there's, it carries truth to it. Every single time, not sometimes, but every single time you take your eyes off Jesus, you are going to fall. You're going to fall hard, and it's going to hurt every single time. So what do we do then when we fall? Maybe for some of you, you're still treading in the water. Maybe for some of you, you're like, I'm fine, and I've been fine. What do we do if we fall? What did Peter do when he started sinking? Did he proudly say, I'll figure this out, or I don't need your help? No, the text says he cried out, Lord, save me. And this is why we have powerful truths, guys, in God's word. That if we confess our sins, He is faithful. He is just to forgive us of our sins and cleanse us of some unrighteousness, all unrighteousness. Oh, the sweetness and the goodness of repentance. That if you simply, and for all of you that don't have never heard this before, if you simply confess. Your sins, the victorious promise of God's word and character says he is faithful and he is just to cleanse you of all unrighteousness. And if there's ever a time in church to say amen, it's right there. Guys, Jesus will forgive you because Jesus has always loved you. Because I want you to see how Jesus responds to Peter crying out to him. Save me, Lord. What does Jesus do? Matthew 14, 31 through 32. And immediately, Jesus stretched out his hand, and he caught him, and he said to him, oh, you of little faith, why did you doubt? And then they got into the boat, and the wind ceased. Again, I can't wait to get to heaven to see this footage, because I'm imagining they're walking back into the, go- into the boat, and it makes you wonder if one of the disciples, like, mumbled to the side, hm, Peter the rock dropped like a rock in the Sea of Galilee today. See what it doesn't matter. Anyways, I want you guys to notice the last thing in Matthew's account of what happened the moment the storm ceased. Matthew 14 33 says, And then those who were in the boat, they came and they worshiped him, saying, Truly you are the Son of God. We all face storms differently. Can I tell you guys something that beyond James's account of counting it as joy, I think the other thing that the very important factor when it comes to storms, Jesus wants no matter what storm we're in, to worship Him. That worship should be the response. In 2015, my brother and sister in law gave birth to a little girl named Paisley Renée Mouchet. And Paisley was only early 20s weeks old when they had to deliver her. And it was unexpected, and it was fast-paced, and it happened within a second. And my sister-in-law is bawling because she does this. It's too early. She can't come out now. It's too early. And the doctors had to reveal to her in that moment, you have to deliver her. And she's only going to live for maybe an hour. She delivered Paisley. And you know what they did? You know what was the first thing they did? And the whole family was at the hospital. This, there, there are, I can count on one hand where I can remember the most powerful moments in my life. But you know what they did as they're holding this beautiful little girl? They were worshiping Jesus, knowing that she was only going to live for one hour. They decided to worship over her body and thank God for the time they had with her. And I, again, I can't think of any other time in my life where I watched such a powerful, profound moment where a lot of us would be wondering, why are you worshiping? And then Paisley passed away. And then they had the funeral service for her, and I... It was the most powerful moment to see this family look to Jesus and say, I don't understand why we had to go through this, but I understand that you're good. The reality is every person, and I get it, is facing a storm of some kind. And beyond just counting it as joy, the, the pure, unaltered worship that Jesus wants from you is that he wants you to not only trust in him, but to trust that he's good, even in the seasons that are the most suffocating and difficult. And even more than that, he wants your faith to increase in him. And maybe some of you in here, like Peter, you've taken your eyes off Jesus. You're treading in water. You feel like at any moment you're going to sink hard. And I'm here to tell you, church, that if you don't know this already, Jesus is ready to take you by the hand and bring you back into the boat of life so that you can cross. Because here's the reality, guys. Every storm has a beginning, but every storm will come to an end. And right now, I'm curious how many of you are in that place. Another thing that's interesting to me about John chapter 6, maybe some of you have never wondered this. I wonder this. Why can't the disciples recognize Jesus? Because think about it. They witnessed Jesus turn water into wine. They watched Jesus heal the nobleman's son, heal the man at the pool of Bethesda. Right before this, they just watched Jesus multiply the bread and the fish. And all of a sudden, they completely don't even recognize Jesus walking on the water as, they're, as he's coming towards them. How is that possible? The answer is because they're not looking for him. The answer is, guys, because they were only looking at their problems. And I want you to think about that for a moment because had they been waiting by faith, knowing that, hey, Jesus has shown that we can trust him every single moment. And if he told us to get in the boat, we're gonna make it to the other side. Instead, they they jumped to false conclusions that the appearance is, is probably a ghost. But you know what I also get? I also get when the waves of life hit you hard in the face, it's hard to see properly. It's hard to be rational and to think clearly. You know what I love most about this story though? I always thought it was funny in John chapter six, verse 21, that it just simply said, "'Then they willingly received him into the boat.'" Why did John, the author, leave out the part of Peter walking on water? I think it's because there was this unspoken rival between these two guys. Have you ever noticed that in Scripture? Have you ever noticed that? like John, I think, purposely left it out. I do. Because have you noticed right after Jesus rises from the dead, Mary Magdalene announces it, and John decided to add this to his account. So Peter and the other disciples started for the tomb. Both were running, and you'd think it would end there. Okay. But the other disciple outran Peter, and they reached, he reached the tomb first. And I could just imagine Peter like, seriously, John? Seriously, you had to put that, but at least you're going to put in the part where I, you know, walk on water and stuff. No, I just, I decided to write, we were afraid, and then we just willingly received you into the boat. (laughs) What? You left out the most important part? What do you, Matthew, are you going to put it in? (laughs) Matthew's going to put it in, he's going to put it in. I love, I love, I love this story. And I love John's account even. Again, I can't wait to get to heaven and to hear both of their perspective. Like, John, I wanna hear your perspective. Peter, I wanna hear yours. And then hear the disciples. Disciples, let's hear your perspective. I love this story because the outcome, when the storm ceases, they worship. First inclination is we need to worship. The moment they replaced their fear with faith was the moment they knew that they can trust Jesus. People face storms differently. And trials really do come in various forms and degrees, and every person in here understands that. We count them as joy, but more than that, church, we worship because he is worthy of our praise. I can count it as joy when I fall into trials because I know my faith is being tested. I can count it as joy because Jesus said, I'm gonna make it into the boat and I will make it to the other side. I'm gonna make it through the storm. And not only that, I can trust that Jesus' eyes are on me. And the promise of the word says, if I draw near to him, he is gonna draw near to me. And the moment I replace my fear with faith, guys, is the moment we can understand true biblical unaltered joy. Because again, have you ever met someone and you look at their life and your life's a mess and how can you be so joyful? It's because faith is a powerful weapon. And I pray the same for you, church, that you can taste the satisfying solution of true Christ centered joy in the storms of life because the reality is Satan wants to use storms in our life and major crises in our life to damage our faith in Jesus and to take our eyes off of jesus and that's exactly why faith is one of the most powerful weapons against satan because if you truly hide god's word in your heart and you believe in your heart of hearts that your your word i've hidden in my heart so that i won't sin against you that you can take moments in life when you are tempted and you're like this is too much to bear and you can go back to scripture and remember wait a second there's no temptation beyond what i'm able to bear that god not only is victorious and it has promised a way of escape, I know that the outcome that he wants is to say no to Satan and yes to Jesus. And that is why faith, guys, comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. The reason why we can face the storms of life with the utmost confidence and not with fear, because you know what the outcome is for Satan versus for us? I'll tell you what it is. We're on the winning side we're on the winning side. But you know what guys, like any other sore loser, they're going to fight dirty. And Satan fights dirty because he knows the outcome. And this is the promise to you, church. The storm, the fight, the battle you face, Christ will go before you. And if you trust him, And if you place your faith in him, and if you worship him in such a way that says, I don't understand why I'm going through this, but I understand that you're good God. Faith is a willingness to trust and rely on, cling to Jesus's promises when every single part of your body and all of your other senses are saying, don't trust in him. You have this sixth sense thing called faith. And when people watch your outcome and how you respond to storms, you don't even realize the way you respond can affect someone eternally in terms of if that person can trust Jesus in a time of crisis then why shouldn't i trust Jesus in a time of calm his eye is on you even now jesus is good amen, amen. let's invite the worship team to come up heavenly father we come before you and we thank you again that that even in the moment where people in here who are facing a time of crisis, a time of trial, whether it's financial or sickness or marital or whatever, God, every person in here has a story to tell, but not every person in here has a story to tell that has an outcome that honors you. And Lord, I just pray that they wouldn't be ridden with guilt, but that they would draw near to your spirit right now to recognize that they can cry out to you like Peter that in this moment, they don't have to go home or live in this state of complacency, that in this moment, they can worship and call out to you. And Lord, I pray that we would be a church again that are desperate to hear from you. And Lord, that in the time of the storm, that we would ask the question, what do you want me to learn and what do you want me to get out of this? And so Lord, I just pray over the church here And I pray as everyone is just thinking and listening that maybe, and for whatever reason, we don't want to admit we're in a storm. And if that is you right now, in your heart of hearts, as we're going to take this response time to worship with the last song, to come before the Lord and to be honest. There's a passage in scripture where a man comes to Jesus, whose son is demon-possessed. And Jesus said, and reveals that all things are possible to those who believe. And the man says, well, I believe, but help my unbelief. And maybe for some of you, that's exactly where you're at, where you trust, you love, you know Jesus is good, but in your heart of hearts, you're struggling with doubt that even in the transparent moment, you can say, Lord, I believe, but help me in my time of unbelief. Lord, I pray over this church and I ask that you would saturate your Spirit within this place that we would make declarations of praise in this moment because you are worthy of our praise. In Jesus' name and all God's people said, Amen. We hope you enjoyed this special service from Calvary Church. We'd love to know how this message impacted you. Email us at my story at And just a reminder, you can support this ministry with a financial gift at Calvarynm.church slash give. Thank you for joining us for this teaching from Calvary Church.